my name is Stacy. Welcome to What Will It Take? In this podcast episode, I will be discussing the danger to democracy that is presented by disengaged citizens. And to do this, I will look at our economic landscape and discuss with you what the significance of politics is in shaping our economic landscape. The tertiary sector is the biggest contributor to the GDP of South Africa. It is comprised of transport, storage facilities, communications, financial services, real estate and government services. These industries employ highly skilled people who represent a minority in our country where the labor force is largely unskilled and poorly educated. As inequality grows, the highly skilled continue to pursue opportunities within the tertiary sector because it presents international opportunities for business expansion, which tend to appear to be more lucrative than those in the secondary and primary sectors. These are the consulting opportunities, the analyst positions, and other personal brand-based businesses, which are often popularized in social and mainstream media. They tend to carry higher social status than the more laborious work in the secondary and primary sectors. These opportunities tend to be the factory-based work, um, that may require the owner to drive the truck sometimes or till the land on their farm. So it's not very glamorous. And it's not the kind of work that could make a popular Instagram post. The tertiary sector jobs are based in urban areas, while the laborious work is usually on the outskirts of these urban areas or in rural areas. This contributes to the enhanced status that's associated with the tertiary sector opportunities, which contributes to the interest in in pursuing employment in the tertiary sector and is amongst the drivers of rural urban migration. As the tertiary sector grows, the opportunities become increasingly specialised, which requires further education and training. And this in turn leads to opportunities within the tertiary sector. And often that can lead to uh, more limited opportunities becoming available within that sector. The growth in the tertiary sector requires the development of infrastructure that enables, that enables the sector So the result of that is that as the development of urban areas takes place, the lifestyles in rural and urban areas become increasingly different until we appear to live in completely different worlds, depending on where you live in the country. So if you live in Joburg and drive out to Limpopo, you could experience two very different realities culturally and visually 
um, within a day. And this is how we end up with first world aspirations in our third world reality. And this creates this disconnect between us as a citizenry and also just how we situate ourselves where we are in terms of understanding fully the context in which we live. Sometimes if you live in urban South Africa, it's easy to forget that we are a third world country and to lose touch with what the complexities of that are. More jobs in our tertiary sector-based economy means an increased demand for people with particular sets of skills. H highly educated people tend to be rewarded for their continuous education. However, only a few of the highly educated people are needed in the economy. So the large numbers of well-educated people compete for just a handful of jobs. And this is why we have a growing number of graduates that are struggling to find jobs in our country. Despite the fact that we constantly hear that there's a need for people to be more skilled and be more educated. And the reality is that there aren't going to be more jobs available. And we can look at the trends in the global north as an indication that this is inevitable. We hear often, um, I guess if you live in, live in South Africa, the, the jokes about Americans who are well-educated and working at McDonald's um, and the likes. It's not uncommon to hear of well-educated people in the global north struggling to find employment or to find employment that meets their skill level. And this is amongst the contributors of that. So now in South Africa, we're faced with a growing pool of young people that are going to study so that they can work in urban areas where the jobs are limited and increasingly specialized. This leads to a lot of young people not having a place in this sector. So where do they go then? Their options are to either create their own opportunities in the tertiary sector, which would mean that they're competing with well-established organizations, some of which are international companies. It's safe to say that in their individual capacity, they're unlikely to be able to compete in the market. The alternatives are to work in the secondary and primary sectors or to be part of the informal economy. Graduates, however, are least likely to be unemployed in comparison to work seekers who have a grade 12 qualification or less, which means that you're probably better off with a degree or tertiary qualification than without one. However, the unemployment of graduates is following the upward trend of the work seekers that have a grade 12 qualification or less. Which means that there is a cause for concern. The secondary sector includes industries such as manufacturing and construction. These industries have not experienced the same degree of growth 
as the tertiary sector and its contribution to the national GDP appears to be steadily declining in comparison to the tertiary sector. So this means that even though industries within the secondary sector may be growing, their contribution to the broader economy is of less value, less monetary value than that of the tertiary sector. It's important to note that jobs in the secondary sector often do not require a university degree. They are also not necessarily located in urban areas, even though this may be favorable. So the jobs in the secondary sector are particularly valuable in South Africa because the vast majority of South Africans are uneducated and unskilled. Those who you, those who have um, university degrees, are in a minor are in the minority, and so their skills aren't even highly sought after. Um, in in a number of in, in the secondary and the primary sector. So graduates don't have like a special advantage in, in this sector. And I think that's the critical thing that we need to note here. Um, but also that the growth of the sector does not depend on people being educated um, at the tertiary level, which is good for our country, um, but not necessarily good for the growing number of graduates who are unemployed. In quarter one of 2021, the secondary sector contributed to 19% of the GDP. According to the latest report from StatSA, the sector has employed 36% of the working people in the country. At the end of 2019, it had employed 40%. So this decline in 2021 can be attributed to the number of people who were let go from their jobs as a result of the coronavirus pandemic because the averages from 2015 to 2019 were um, around 40%. Interestingly, StatSA reports that the secondary sector employs more women than the primary sector, particularly in manufacturing and utilities. This means that the growth of the secondary sector is more likely to yield a significant impact in improving the livelihoods of women in South Africa. The economic empowerment of women is a significant factor in contributing um, in mitigating gender-based violence and the exploitation of women in domestic work. This means it presents an opportunity to reduce the number of women who are dependent on government social grants for their children as well. So growth in the secondary sector yields potential impact that will go beyond monetary gain and job creation uh, in that sense.
this would explain, you know, the emphasis on call um, in, 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 some, in some circles for um, industrialization, right? This is the value of industrialization. It creates more productivity, which leads to um, the development of, of industries of all sorts. And it also um, contributes to the development of infrastructure. The primary sector, lastly, is made up of the mining and agricultural industries, which have on average maintained their percentage contribution to the GDP since 1994. However, there are several issues concerning the competing interests of agriculture and mining. And I will address these in another podcast. What is important in this particular podcast, though, is that unskilled members of the labor force are most likely to work in this primary sector, formally and informally. It's also the sector that is most directly affected by the land contestation. And by that I mean land expropriation will affect mining and agricultural industries. It's important to consider then who will be affected by this. It's not just the mining companies, the agricultural, um, the farming or the farmers. It's also the many people who are employed in these industries. In quarter one of 2021, the primary sector contributed 11% to the GDP. And in the latest StatSA report, the sector contributed only 9% of um, employed people in amongst the working population. On one hand, this speaks to why conversations about land expropriation are misplaced, particularly where it is framed around crops and farming. Even claims over the minerals miss this critical aspect of our economic development. Because what it means is that for every job that's created in the agricultural and mining industry, there isn't a significant um, monetary return to the economy. It also speaks to the significant room for growth within the sector. Indeed, there are many successful farms and mines in the country, and this may contribute to why there is a very skewed conversation about land in our country and um, the benefits of expropriation and the value of ownership of this of this land in relation to agriculture and mining. But either these farms and mines could be more productive or they just offer very valuable case studies for how to make our land productive. Given the large numbers of people that are unemployed in South Africa, it appears that land expropriation is counterproductive. And the ratio of jobs to GDP contribution is not the most strategic sector to develop 
to maximize economic growth. It's reasonable to conclude then that land expropriation merely serves a symbolic purpose. However, the cost of the endeavor is extremely high. The cost isn't just in terms of monetary value. The cost is also in terms of social stability and um, social cohesion. So then why are politicians focusing our attention on this? I think it's because it's an easy way to mobilize the masses around a common enemy. I think it's slightly lazy, but the simplicity of this rhetoric makes it stick. However, our political leaders, educated population and well-informed citizens have an obligation to address areas of tension responsibly. If we understand that this is not in our best interest as a country, economically and socially, then we have a responsibility to be sensitive about how we handle this matter. This means that we cannot just watch nor take part in exploiting something that could disrupt all of our lives especially when we already know that it will yield very few fruits. And this is the role of political engagement. It's about us having these difficult conversations. It's about welcoming the fact that there are politicians calling for land expropriation and questioning them about why they think this is necessary. In quarter one of this year, the agricultural industries contributed 3% to the GDP. And this translated into the employment of approximately 792,000 people. This means that although agriculture may employ a lot of people, the number of people employed does not lead to significantly more money being made. And an example of this, an example of a country that has um, an agriculture industry that employs a lot of people is Burkina Faso, in which 80% of the population is employed in the agricultural sector. Yet the farming in Burkina is largely subsistence-based farming. Therefore, Political campaigns oriented around the rhetoric of economic liberation being realized through land expropriation are leaving out a lot of very critical details. Firstly, what is the legitimate need to expropriate given the size of the primary sector in South Africa? I've explained the small percentage of people that are employed in the primary sector, as well as the relatively small contribution to the GDP that's made by agriculture and um, the primary sector more broadly. It appears that there is enough land in South Africa to create new enterprises in the sector, which there's also a need for. 
there is room to grow our primary sector. So why is the focus on expropriation rather than how much development is required within the primary sector? Secondly, what will they do with the land to use it as a means of economic development? As per the Burkina Faso example, clearly farming is not the key to economic development because employing several people in agriculture does not contribute a lot of money to the GDP necessarily. Mining also is limited in its ability to contribute um, to the value contributed to the GDP. Thirdly, based on how uh, political parties intend to use the land, what are the skills that we need to develop to enable the use of this land so that it effectively drives economic development? Clearly, free tertiary education is not required for the development of the primary sector. As mentioned, this sector is most likely to employ unskilled people and people without an education. So why then are the political parties that are calling for land expropriation also the political parties that are calling for free tertiary education? What is it that makes them believe that these two matters go hand in hand? I'm of the view that this rhetoric is oriented around issues of inclusion, which is a battle that's been fought by previous generations that have been focused on political inclusion, which of course is significant. It's not something to be dismissed, okay? I think that's amongst the things that we need to work on a bit as a country, that... Um, Disagreement doesn't necessarily nullify the value of an argument that's, that's been made. And so it's important that education is accessible. However, we cannot claim that free tertiary education and land expropriation are necessary for economic liberation. When political rhetoric is left unquestioned, it's likely to leave us faced with the same dilemmas that we're confronted with today. The critical factor in driving the turning point that will prevent us being in the same dilemma we're facing today is figuring out how to best employ the current surplus of tertiary educated people who are of working age. What is the best use of the skills base to ensure that the number of unemployed graduates does not rise any further than the current 12,5%? This is the latest figure of um, unemployed graduates. At the end of last year, it was 11.2%. Prior to that, it was around 7%. So clearly, the number is steadily rising. 
It's also important to keep in mind that several of the graduates who are already employed are likely to be underemployed. This means that they're employed in jobs that are below their skill level. So their skills are not necessarily being used effectively. That means that the number of people who could be better used to contribute to economic growth and the expansion of businesses is greater than 12,5%. There are many of us who are young and capable of grappling with these complex issues. And for our own sake, we must question our political leaders and engage in the difficult conversations rather than taking the rhetoric at face value. Further, for our own sake, we cannot be bystanders while the current political leaders lead the masses astray. By being bystanders, we're contributing to the pain that's being... <laughs> By being bystanders, we're contributing to the consequences that we will have to confront. We need to be having these difficult conversations amongst ourselves as peers, as well as with our neighbors who may not know anything about these things. Because we need to understand where we're gonna meet each other as a society, where we're gonna meet um, each other despite our differences and despite our conflicting interests. We're the ones who need to be setting the agenda for Africa because there's only so much that our current leaders can offer us for guidance because the challenges that we are facing are quite different to those that they have been battling. As previously stated, previous generations have largely been fighting for inclusion and the struggle for that isn't yet over. However, this 12,5% of us represent a new struggle that we need to deal with. And we already know that our generation's struggle is economic liberation, thanks to the work that the EFF has been doing. However, popular solutions that are on the table are reflective of a different generation's battle. The current solutions to economic liberation speak a lot to inclusion rather than how we want our economy to look and how we'd like it to to grow with us. I guess when we're asking for inclusion, we're recognizing what the status quo is and calling to be part of it. When we're speaking about economic liberation, we're talking about quality of life, we're talking about um, what development looks like, what kind of infrastructure we'd like to have, what kind of working conditions we'd like to be employed under and so 
we need to begin to have more of those conversations with the recognition of the international context in which we're in. Sometimes when we're talking about industrialization, we may default to China as an example, but of course, China's challenge in the development of their secondary industry has been the extensive pollution that they are still figuring out how to manage. In seeing the challenges that China has had to confront, we must understand that the risks of development of the secondary industry that are aggressive and speak to um, the way things have always been done are likely to yield to damage, significant damage along the way that will cost us money and lives as a society. But of course, this is what we need an engaged citizenry for. We need people who are talking about both sides of that reality, questioning um, whether, whether, um, whether China is an example we want to follow um, or whether we should be thinking about something else. But right now, the emphasis is on the value of getting the land back so that we can be empowered because if you control, if you control the food production, then you control the whole society. But um, that doesn't seem to be entirely true. It doesn't mean that it's not an important part of development it doesn't take away from the value of discussing the um, legitimacy of claims over land however it does require us to have more critical engagement and to recognize the trade-offs that we would be making under those circumstances and consider whether they really are as valuable as they've been made out to be. I implore you then, if you're listening to this podcast as a young and well-educated and skilled person, whether you're employed or not, or you're a business person, um, to consider quite seriously how you're engaging in politics, what that means for you in the next 10 years. Sometimes politics gets taken as something that is for people uh, that talk too much and uh, want to sell empty dreams that they can't really be expected to live up to.
politics in our country has done so much and I think that we've been fortunate enough, most of us, to witness a number of those um, critical impacts of, of politics. So politics can be very valuable, but we need to learn how to use it. A lot of young people didn't turn up to vote um, in the past election, and I think that that's completely reasonable. I think that it's unfortunate, and it definitely sends a message that needs to be heard. However, we too have greater obligation than to merely stay away from the polls. We stayed away from the polls now, a lot of us, I voted, <laughs> but a lot of us young people stayed away from the voting polls for good reason, because we don't feel represented, we don't feel heard, we don't feel included in the formal structures of our economy, sometimes our institutions and organizations that we work for. But the reality is that we're not going to feel heard by chance. If we don't feel heard, then we need to make ourselves heard. That happens through involvement, and engagement, and asking questions. Often, protests are seen as more effective than engaging in the formal institutions. But I think really this is reflective of the challenges of navigating formality. And that may be contributing to why so many citizens are disengaged. There is a lot to understand in politics, you know? And maybe we don't talk about that enough. Maybe the emphasis on corruption and um, identity politics leads to us missing the actual function of politics, which is the representation of people and decisions about how we should organize the society. What is our idea of justice? What is our idea of development? What is our idea of fairness? It's ultimately what we want our politicians to be doing. It's not just about service delivery. Service delivery is, is, um, is the translation of our ideas of justice. Service delivery speaks to issues around what we think fairness is, right? So in our country, for example, um, we hear people always talking about their rights. And that's because of the battles fought by previous generations for inclusion. And part of this inclusion involves ensuring that people's basic needs are met. The idea of meeting people's basic needs speaks to our ideas of what justice looks like. 
and how we realize justice as a society. So people sat down prior to the several elections we may have witnessed if you're in your 20s and decided that what we want our society to look like is to ensure that all people are able to have their lights on and able to have a roof over their heads no matter how it is that we do it and then we task the politicians with figuring out how to do it that is the function of politics the decision to of how of how we will live how we will organize the society as a society and also then the institutions the bureaucrats and the technocrats will then make those ideas a reality. Those conversations are complicated conversations. That's why the land issue has been so controversial. They're meant to be difficult conversations. They're meant to be conversations that make people emotional. And this is why having the right kind of political leaders is so critical because their job is supposed to be difficult. Their job is supposed to challenge them personally um, and socially. They have such a critical role to play in our society. And we make light of a lot of the things that go on in our political landscape. But the work that our politicians do is so vital to the wealthiest and the poorest citizens in our country the biggest corporations and Abu Mama, Ababa, Tengisa on the side of the streets, you know. And we have a lot of really great um, people that are working in our political system who are really doing so much to, to realize ideas um, we have about what justice looks like and to realize um, an inclusive society. But there are a lot of things that are getting lost along the way. And amongst the things that um, we know uh, are a challenge to realizing the kind of society that we need is the gap between who is employed at the municipal level and the people who are employed at parliament. We have all these very well-educated, well-traveled, passionate people uh, working at, at the parliamentary level. And many of them have a lot of opportunities to engage with other people from different countries working in that sphere, um, which is really great for morale and for keeping one motivated to continue to, to probe and consider what more can be done. We don't have that same level of engagement and exposure and sometimes training at municipal levels. However, what we do have at municipal levels are people um, who are 
personally affected in their everyday lives by the decisions that have been made and the policies that have been envisioned. And when we're able to address these matters amongst ourselves in our communities, along with our um, bureaucrats, private companies, then we present an opportunity for ourselves to be more involved in shaping the visions that are created for how we should live. So although we task politicians to make critical decisions so that they see the broader picture, our perspective is important and making sure that we are understood about what we want and what we need is important. And this is what citizen engagement is. We don't have to respond to political sensation. We don't have to respond to issues of corruption. If we want to respond to the pothole on, in our road, then that's what we respond to. If we want to get angry about if we've got the contract for the pothole, that's what we get angry about. But we don't take that to, to Parliament. We take that to our most local um, political representative or political office. And we start addressing issues that way. We start getting involved in the system that way, learning what it is that goes on by allowing ourselves to take part. I hope then you have a better sense of why being an engaged citizen is so important. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, the big headlines with the corruption and the scandal are smaller issues to us than the, than the issues um, that we need to deal with on a day-to-day. And that's okay, you know. We, leave, we can leave the corruption um, that's happening at ESCOM to our politicians to tackle without losing sight of it, you know. You keep it in the back of your mind. But when we're fighting these small battles that are happening in our neighborhoods, we're able to make a significant impact in shaping how it is that our society will function. We're able to help our bureaucrats um, be more committed to the work that they're doing, to feel supported. I think that that's also a big thing for a number of government employees, especially at a local level, who are given so much responsibility and um, often not enough resources or support to execute what's expected of them. This is especially the case in small towns. Um, we, We know that many small towns don't have revenue to fulfill their obligation to Um, the people who live in the town, you know, but they're expected to figure it out. When you and I get involved and make sure that things are happening in our ward, um, in our homes even, then really things start changing.